Okay, we're in Matthew chapter 26. And again, Father, we ask your blessing on our Bible study this evening. In your name we pray. Amen. Chapter 23 was Jesus' last public sermon. You remember, he blasted the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. Well, chapters 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse, was his last private sermon. There he encouraged his disciples to watch and be ready for his soon return. Well, now in chapter 26, we're told that all Jesus needed to say has been said. His role is now shifting from preacher to Passover lamb, from sermonizer to sacrifice. Jesus is now stepping out of the pulpit, and he's heading to the cross. We begin chapter 26, and that came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. Now history tells us that the Jewish high priest at the time was a man named Caiaphas. And Caiaphas had four brothers who were all involved in the temple trade. You see, they had this business. They were exchanging money and they were selling sacrifices. Basically, they were ripping off innocent worshipers. The temple market had turned into a family racket. Caiaphas had come to power because his father, Annas, the former high priest, had stepped down to avoid any appearance of a conflict of interest. When Jesus cleansed the temple a few days earlier, hey, he upset the Jewish authorities, but none more so than the high priest Caiaphas. Jesus had challenged his authority, and he had threatened his revenue stream. It's no surprise that Jesus' murder was hatched at Caiaphas' house. As a side note, in 1990, archaeologists working in the old city of Jerusalem dug up a tomb that contained an ossuary or a bone box. Inscriptions on the bone box determined that the bones inside belonged to Caiaphas, the high priest. It was the first physical evidence outside the Bible of Caiaphas' existence, testifying once more to the historical accuracy of the Scriptures. We're told, but they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. The anger of these men had been brewing all day. Jesus had not only driven out the money changers from God's house, but he turned over the tables and the Jewish scholars, you remember, had tried to trap him in their theological riddles. Again, Jesus had upset their arguments and had proved his wisdom and their fallacies. Hey, it was a bad day to be a, a Sadducee. These Jewish leaders had been exposed. They had been humiliated. They want to murder Jesus, but their conclusion is not during the feast, lest we create an uproar among the people. Verse 6, when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. Now these kinds of perfumes were usually imported from India, and they were very, very expensive. This vial was probably a family heirloom. It was worth perhaps a year's wage. 
John 12 tells us that it was Lazarus' sister, Mary, who brought this flask. And she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. Now there's a good chance that this precious oil was intended to be Mary's dowry. In other words, her ticket to marriage. If so, breaking it and using it to anoint Jesus' head was her saying that she was willing to even forego marriage to prove her love and her devotion to her Lord Jesus. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? And John says specifically that it was Judas who was upset about Mary's actions. For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. Actually, this was a smokescreen. Judas was not worried about the poor. John 12, verse 6 tells us that Judas was the treasurer of Jesus' evangelistic association, and he was a thief to boot. All along, he was skimming off the top, depositing the checks, but taking the cash out of the offering. He was a crook. That's why he was upset at the suggestion of giving this money to the poor. Author Kent Hughes appropriately labels Judas as the man who knew the price of everything and the value of nothing. Well said. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. Hey, Judas was pilfering, but his excuse was pragmatism. You can hear him babbling now. Oh, what about the enormous needs in the world? There's soup kitchens. There's homes for unwed mothers. There's homeless shelters. They need our funds. Why waste this money on worship? Understand, real worship is never, ever practical. It's always spiritual. Worship's value can never be measured by a calculator or deposited in a bank. The word worship is the English word which means worthship. To worship is to ascribe worth or to ascribe value to God. It's not a monetary exchange. It's not a physical transference of goods. It's an emotional exchange between the worshiper and his God. Worship isn't designed to benefit us as much as, though it does in many ways. Rather, worship is an attempt to bless the heart of God, and that's always how it has to be approached. Worship is one of the most unselfish acts you can perform. You know, worship is like buying flowers for your wife. Now, I don't know about how you guys feel about it, but on a practical level, let's face it. Buying flowers is a terrible waste of resources. I mean, don't you agree? One weak amen down here in front. Nobody else had the courage to say that, my friend. But really and truly, I mean, buying flowers is a terrible waste of money. I mean, they're, they're there for a few days, they shrivel up, they die, they're gone. I mean, and you've blown it. You've wasted 40 bucks. But relationally, buying flowers, oh, it can be a very, very strategic move. It can be much appreciated. It can become a valuable, valuable gesture. Amen. <laughs> The value of worship is the same way. The value of worship is appreciated and understood only by lovers. And obviously Judas was not a lover of God, was he? The word Judas means praise, but sadly this man knew nothing of real praise 
and real worship. Mary's act is a demonstration, though, of true worship. And a demonstration, I think, unparalleled in Scripture. It epitomizes the essence of real worship. It's a story, by the way, that's told in all four Gospels. I think it's in all four Gospels because it gives us the basics, the ABCs of worship. Think of it this way. Let's think of an acrostic, ABC. A is for adoration. Mary's act was motivated by love, not legalism. Delight, not duty. Worship is never forced or coerced. It always flows from a heart in love with Jesus. B is for brokenness. Notice the fragrance filled the room and touched the head of Jesus only after the vial had been broken. Likewise, worship flows from a broken life. We don't really ascribe worth to God until we're aware of our own unworthiness. And C, it was costly. Worship is always costly for the worshiper. Worship always involves a price, a cost. It'll cost you your time or your effort or perhaps your image. Oh, I'm not into raising hands, man. I don't want anybody to think I'm a fanatic. There's always a cost associated with worship. As with Mary, real worship is oblivious to what other people think. Mary's act, like all true worship, was more romantic than it was pragmatic. This is why people on the outside... People who aren't madly in love with Jesus will never understand the extravagance of worship. To them, it appears like a waste. Well, Jesus says in verse 12, For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Now, perfumes were placed on corpses to mask the odors as the body deteriorated. But Mary believed that the body of Jesus would not see corruption. I mean, she was one of the few people who heard Jesus promise to rise the third day and actually hear it, actually believe Him. She believed in His resurrection, so she anointed Him before His burial. It's interesting. You know, Jesus told His disciples many times that He would be crucified and that three days later He would rise from the dead. But for some reason, it sailed over everybody's head but Mary's. And you wonder why that is. Could it be that there is a close association between revelation and adoration? In other words, the person who spends time worshiping at the feet of Jesus sees truths that other people miss. People ask me all the time, how how do you know God's will? How How do you know it's God's voice that's speaking to you? Well, the more you listen to it, the more you recognize it. Worship breeds communication with God and insight about God. Notice verse 13. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. We're fulfilling this prophecy tonight. Once again, the aroma of Mary's broken flask is in the air, in the room tonight. I love what Alexander McLaren says about it. He says, The fragrance was soon dissipated in the scentless air, but the deed smells sweet and blossoms forever. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. It was the price of a mere slave. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. 
Now, Judas is a complex character, and we could spend the rest of the night really trying to unravel his twisted mind. One theory for his betrayal, we mentioned it this morning, was his disappointment. That he expected Jesus to bring a physical, political kingdom. And he would be the czar of the IRS. He was the treasurer. But Jesus had no such ambition. Judas, in turn, sold out Jesus. And sadly, this has happened many, many times since. People come to Jesus and they expect him to bless their business or save their marriage or solve their problem. And when they don't get the desired outcome, they turn on Jesus. A true follower doesn't insist on his own agenda. To follow is to let Jesus lead. Well, verse 17 tells us, Now on the first day of the feast of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Now a Passover Seder or celebration doesn't just happen. Detailed preparations have to take place. And here Jesus sends out his disciples to make these preparations. They took their lamb to the temple and they had it slaughtered. They went to the market where they purchased unleavened bread and bitter herbs and crushed fruit. They returned to the upper room and there they purged the house of leaven. Then they roasted the lamb. The aroma of roasted mutton filled Jerusalem's streets during the Passover. There were a lot of preparations made. Now when evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now, as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And isn't it amazing? It is to me that Jesus had known from the beginning the identity of his betrayer, yet the disciples were oblivious. That says to me a lot about how Jesus treated Judas. Hey, if it had been me in Jesus' position, the identity of my betrayer would have been clear a long time ago. I mean, the disciples would have concluded, wow, my, why does Judas always get latrine duty? Well, why is he always the one doing the dirty work? Why, why does he get the cold food and rides in the back of the bus? What, what's wrong with Judas? Hey, if it had been me, Judas would have been in the doghouse from the very beginning. The fact that the disciples didn't, didn't know who it was that was going to betray him testifies to the amazing love and grace and mercy Jesus had shown Judas. Jesus loved his future enemy. He actually exalted Judas by making him the treasurer. He trusted him even though he knew that Judas was a thief. He cared for Judas. Judas had every opportunity to repent and to avoid his destiny. And yet he didn't take advantage of it. Verse 23. Jesus answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Now, John's gospel gives us some additional light on why and how Jesus indicated Judas. In ancient times, 
people reclined at the table. Since most people are right-handed, they would lean back on their left elbow and that they would eat then with their right hand. John says that on occasion, reclining at the table, he would lean back and he would rest his head on Jesus' shoulder. We're told that Peter motioned to John to ask Jesus to identify his betrayer. Obviously, he was close enough to sort of whisper to John, but he, he wasn't close enough to Jesus to whisper to him. Jesus and Judas were close enough to dip bread together into a bowl. Now, when you put all this together, you get a picture of the seating arrangement that night. Jesus was at the head of the table. John was on his right hand, and Judas was on his left hand. In ancient Israel, the left-handed position was reserved for the right-hand man. It was the place of honor. It's chilling to think that Jesus' head was just inches from Judas' heart as he was announcing to the group that there was a betrayer among them. I'm sure even the evil Judas, with his iron-clad conscience, had a hard time keeping his composure. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, you have said it. And in John 13, verse 30, we're told, having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. It was night in more ways than one. Verse 26, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now, the unleavened bread of Passover was cooked on a griddle. The bread came out bumpy and striped and perforated. It was a perfect picture of the crucified Christ. You know, a piece of Jewish matzah is the only portrait that we have of our Lord Jesus. Sometimes I think, wouldn't it have been great if they had cameras back in those days? We could see what Jesus looked like. Here's the only portrait that we have of Jesus. He's unleavened or he's sinless. Leaven was a type of sin. Jesus had no sin. He was unleavened bread. The bumpiness reminds us of how his face was beaten and bruised for our sake. The stripes teach us how that Jesus' back was lashed into ribbons by the scourging of the Romans. The holes, the pierced marks, the perforations remind us of how the thorns pierced his head and the nails, his hands and feet, and the Roman spear punctured his side. When Jesus held up that bread and said to the disciples, this is my body. The men in that room had no idea that Jesus was holding up a picture of himself. Understand, for these first disciples, this statement, this is my body, this was revolutionary. Jesus redefined a 1,500-year-old tradition. You see, after the Passover meal, the Jews would have dessert. They called it the afikoman. The bread that Jesus held up to remind the Jews, this is my body. It was the Afikoman. And for 1,500 years, it had represented their faith in Egypt. They didn't use leaven because God had promised that they would leave Egypt the next day. There was no time for the bread to rise. That's why at Passover, they always ate unleavened bread. It was a symbol of their faith. But from now on, this bread will speak of their faith in Jesus Christ. For he is our Afikoman. Or our dessert. Jesus is the bread of life. He is both the sustainer and the satisfier of our soul. 
Though His sacrifice upon the cross, through His sacrifice upon the cross, we experience our exodus from sin. He said, this is my body. But then He took the cup and He gave thanks and He gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. This was actually the third of four cups in the Seder meal. It was called the cup of redemption. And again, for 1,500 years, it had looked back to the eve of the Exodus and the blood of the lamb that had been spread on the doorposts and the thresholds of the Hebrew homes there in Egypt. When the death plague saw the blood, it passed over the house. Thus the name Passover. But Jesus redefines the wine. From now on, he says, it'll speak of my blood. When the blood of Jesus is spread on our hearts, what happens? Death passes over us. We receive salvation. On the night of the Passover, it didn't matter the worthiness of the people that were within the house. It didn't matter whether they had done good works or been religious or kept the rituals. None of that mattered. All that mattered, all that counted was the application of the blood. Likewise, none of us are granted salvation because we're worthy. None of us. Because we've done this or done that or performed this ritual or that ritual. Our only hope is in the application of the blood. If you have by faith embraced Jesus, he's applied his blood on the doorposts and on the hinges of your heart. And it's because of the application of the blood that death passes over us. You know, a group of seminary students were, had a deep admiration for one of their old professors. He was such a godly man. They, they were amazed when he spoke. They enjoyed his conversation. And, and one night, they wanted to know, I mean, what was it about this man? How did anyone walk so close to God? And so one night, in an attempt to try to discover his secrets and all, they, they hid outside his room. They wanted to eavesdrop in on his prayers. They suspected him to pray some really, I mean, amazing, wonderful prayers. They were sitting there expecting a long, fluent prayer. But when the man crawled into bed, he kind of pulled the covers up over him, and he uttered just a short, simple prayer. He said, Lord, I just want to thank you that we're on the same old terms. Guys, that's the key to godliness. Remembering that it's not our work, but it's Jesus' work. It's remembering that his blood has established new terms, a new covenant. It's by faith and faith alone. It's by remembering the body and blood of Jesus that we stay on good footing, on good terms with God. Jesus said, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, the next glass of wine Jesus drinks will be a toast to his bride after we've been raptured to heaven with him. Verse 30 tells us, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, the Passover Psalms are the Hallel Psalms. They're Psalms 113 through 118. And so if you want to know what Jesus sang that night, go home tonight and read those six Psalms. And I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking, what a treat it would have been to hear Jesus sing. He was one of those that sang the hymns as they, as they, you know, as they walked out and, and walked across to the, to the Mount of Olives. 
You know, if you read some of these psalms, you'll discover that they speak primarily of the Messiah's suffering and his rejection. Wouldn't it have been an eerie, somber experience to hear Jesus on the threshold of the cross actually sing about the suffering that he would experience the very next day? How powerful. Well, then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, and he quotes here from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. All twelve disciples, not just Judas, will fall this night. They'll all stumble. They'll all forsake Jesus, but he won't forsake them. The shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered, yet when the shepherd arises, he will lift up his fallen sheep. Verse 33, And Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Oh my. Peter's so self-confident, isn't he? That's the problem. He was self-confident. Notice the pride in the contrast that he draws. Even if all are made to stumble, I will never stumble. Lord, they're all weak. They might stumble, Lord, but not me. Oh, not me. I could never deny you, Lord. Hey, beware of pride. God confidence, good. Self-confidence, bad. About the time you think you're able to stand on your own two feet, you fall flat on your back. Our only hope, guys, is grace, mercy, the staying power of God's Spirit. That's where our confidence needs to be placed. But Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter had been strutting around the apostolic barnyard like a little old rooster, hadn't he? Kind of cocky, wasn't he? But he'll end up proving chicken before the rooster crows. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Well, they all got to keep up with Peter, so they all chimed in and boasted as well. Verse 36, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. The word Gethsemane means oil press. And boy, do I love to visit this garden whenever I go to Jerusalem. It's on the western slope of the Mount of Olives. It's across from the Kidron Valley, right across from the Temple Mount. It's a lovely grove of very, very old olive trees. In fact, some of these olive trees actually date back to the time of Jesus. Imagine, you walk down the pathways knowing that those trees right there may have been the very trees that Jesus sat under. Jesus knelt under and prayed to his Father on this incredible night. It's actually a private garden just across the street. If you tip the gatekeeper, which I don't mind doing, you can actually go in and you can spend some time there meditating on what happened that night. To me, it's still a very, very special place. At the time of Jesus, this garden was no doubt an active oil press. 
This was a place, Gethsemane, the press, was where they squeezed the oil from the olives. And it was probably near the press that Jesus felt the pressure of His own emotions this night. In the garden of the oil press, the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was crushed and He was squeezed. Understand, Gethsemane was Jesus' hour of testing. This was His moment of truth. Hey, the battle was won, the battle was fought and won, not on the cross. By the time Jesus got to the cross, His obedience was a foregone conclusion. The battle was fought in Gethsemane. The outcome was decided the night before the crucifixion. Victory was won. Not by Jesus standing before the Jews and Pilate, but by Jesus kneeling in prayer before His Father the night before. Verse 37 tells us, And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Remember who they were? James and John. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. You know, Peter, James, and John, they were with Jesus in three important situations. They were kind of his inner circle. When he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, the Mount of Transfiguration, and here in the Garden of Gethsemane, he all had Peter, James, and John. He brought them with him. And, And as they were there, he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now view this scene through the lens of all four Gospels, and an interesting picture emerges. Luke tells us that Jesus knelt and prayed. Mark says that he fell on the ground and prayed. Matthew describes him here falling prostrate on his face in prayer. You put it all together, and it seems that Jesus collapses under the weight of his emotional distress. He first kneels, but then he buckles. Finally, he he hits the ground, and he spreads himself prostrate on his face before God. You know, Luke also mentions that Jesus' beads of perspiration that night were the consistency and the appearance of large drops of blood. Jesus was in inexplicable agony. As Matthew puts it here, He was exceedingly sorrowful and deeply distressed. And his prayers, understand, were no mere whispers. Hebrews 2, verse 7 speaks of this same night, and it tells us Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with vehement vehement prayer, cries, and tears. And I was in an amazing moment here. The master of every situation buckles under to his burden. He cries out. He shouts out to God. He sweats great drops of blood. He's being pressed here in the garden of the oil pressed. You know, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Gethsemane was necessary, for through it, Jesus learned obedience. That, that always strikes me. Jesus, the Son of God who knew no sin, had to learn obedience? Well, indeed he did. And here's why. Obedience is not something you learn by reading about it or by hearing about it or by talking about it. You can only learn obedience by doing it. 
by making the tough choices in the difficult situations. That's how you learn obedience. You have to go through it. You have to do it. Well, then he came to the disciples. Jesus is learning obedience here. Then he came to the disciples and he found them asleep and he said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. For the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. How true is that statement? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. How often we've knelt to pray and fallen asleep. Well, maybe I won't speak for you, but I speak for myself. I kneel down to pray, and I can't even keep my eyelids open. You know, Satan has the amazing ability to make our eyes heavy and our heads drowsy. Do you realize that? Our spirit has been redeemed. Oh, we love God. We want to serve God. We want to love others. But doing God's will is difficult because it requires the cooperation of our flesh. Our good intentions are not enough. We, we too, have to learn obedience. And again, the second time, he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Now, people assume, I've heard preachers preach this, that Jesus is actually asking to escape the cross. That this cup was the cross. And he wants God to take it from him. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's what's going on. I believe the cup that Jesus wanted to pass from him was a cup full of hurt and rejection. You see, he had just predicted that his disciples would deny him. In fact, at this very moment, Judas was on his way to betray him. In a few hours, his people, his own people, his brothers, the Jews, are going to shout out, crucify him, crucify him. Now, it's one thing to die for people who appreciate your sacrifice. It's another thing to die for the very people that are wanting to hammer in the nails. And I believe that Jesus was tempted, just as we are often tempted, to stop loving, to become resentful, to hold a grudge. You know, there are several prophetic psalms that express Jesus' pain in this moment. Psalm 41, verse 9, predicts the master's hurt and rejection. It says, Even my own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 55, verse 12 says, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has magnified himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, my companion and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. Think of it. Jesus and Judas walked to the temple together. They worshiped the Father side by side. How did you react if a supposed friend ended up betraying you? Would you go ahead and go to the cross? Would suffering die for your betrayer? Hey, Jesus was born to die. Remember the wise men that brought embalming fluids to his baby shower. I mean, he, he was born to die. Jesus had been telling his disciples now for months that he would be crucified. John 17, verse 1, he first to the cross at his moment of glory. I don't believe for a second that Jesus is asking God to avoid the cross. What he's asking God to do 
And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And so he left them and went again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. And then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? What an honor for Peter, James, and John to have been invited to the garden. I can't think of a holier moment in the history of humanity, and yet the disciples showed their appreciation by sawing logs, cutting Z's. They were oblivious. Jesus wakes them, though, with some ominous news. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now that the pain has passed, that the cup has been lifted, Jesus is ready for what lies ahead. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. You know, for years I wondered, why did the priests need Judas? Surely they were able to pick Jesus out on their own. They'd seen him often enough. And why did Judas identify Jesus with a kiss? With a sign of friendship. I mean, he could have pointed his finger. Could have gone up and tapped him on the shoulder. Again, I believe it was Satan's attempt to embitter Jesus. A kiss, a symbol of friendship, was a dagger in his back. Satan hoped that a betrayal would cause Jesus to throw up his hands, to forget the cross, to avoid this whole thing. That's why Jesus had prayed that the Father would take this cup from him. He, he didn't want to feel that pain. He didn't want to feel that rejection. And I believe God obliged. I believe that pain was replaced by God's peace. And now his heart is overflowing with love, even for his enemies. Look at how he responds to Judas' kiss. But Jesus said to him, friend, friend, why have you come? He calls him friend. Jesus looks his betrayer in the eye and he feels nothing for him but love. We need to ask God for strength to love our enemies. Verse 50, Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of them who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. John 18, verse 10, identifies the brother with the blade as Peter. Peter tries to slice this guy down the middle. He's aiming for the center of his head. And at the last minute, the guy ducks and tries to dip away. And Peter nips his ear, cuts it right off. But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and He will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? A legion, by the way, was 6,000 troops. 12 legions, 72,000 angels. How then could the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Jesus is telling His disciples this is not their fight. This is the fulfillment of Scripture. In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out 
as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me. I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Now we're told by John that Jesus reached down and he grabbed the ear of the high priest's servant, Malchus, probably dusted it off, and then he put it back on to the man's head. I mean, can you imagine? This priestly posse was stunned, not only by the power, but by the kindness. I mean, when do criminals perform miracles of healing on those who try to arrest them? That was Jesus. Sadly, the replacing of the ear on the Malchus's head is a miracle that has been repeated countless times throughout the centuries. In fact, I'm not so sure it's not Jesus' most common miracle. Healing those people that his servants have hurt. That's sad. Far too often, Jesus has to heal the folks that we, in our attempts to serve him, end up hurting. Verse 57 introduces the most important trial in the history of mankind. The Jewish Sanhedrin versus Jesus of Nazareth. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. The Sanhedrin was the 70-member Supreme Court of Judaism. Now, when we piece all four Gospels together, we find that Jesus was actually tried five different times. John 18, verse 13 says that after his arrest, Jesus was taken first to Annas. Remember the former high priest? Then he was brought to the house of the current priest, Caiaphas. Okay. Once he was condemned by the Jewish Sanhedrin and Caiaphas, he was then taken to the fortress of Antonio, the Roman headquarters inside the temple compound, to the Roman procurator, Pontius Pilate. In the hands of the Romans, Jesus became sort of a political hot potato. Pilate tried to pass the bucket first, He hears that Jesus is from Galilee, and he knows that Herod, who rules over Galilee, is in town, and so he sends him to Herod. Well, Herod refuses to get involved, and then sends him back to Pilate. So there, he gets tried five times, before Annas, before Caiaphas, before Pilate, before Herod, and then back again before Pilate. You know, until I visited Jerusalem, I pondered how that all this movement could take place In just a few short hours. Here's a model of the city of Jerusalem. And and you know, I was going to bring my little laser pointer that somebody gave me for my birthday, but I forgot. Does anybody have a laser pointer? Sometimes. Let me me show you. It's okay, Josh. You can can trust me. Okay, here's what happens. The Mount of Olives is over here on this side. Got me? See the temple compound right there? See the temple? It's got got to nod your head. You got to shake your head. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, over off of the picture, over here on this side is the Mount of Olives. 
That was where the Garden of Gethsemane was located. So all of a sudden, Jesus is taken from the Mount of Olives. He's taken down around the Temple Mount, and he's taken right over here into this quarter back over here. So he goes from east of Jerusalem south, all the way to southwest of Jerusalem. You with me? You follow me? Okay, that's where Annas' house, that's where the priest, that was a priestly neighborhood. So that's where Annas and Caiaphas lived. Okay, he's taken from there, and he's taken back to the temple. You see right above, you see in the, in the uh, northwest corner of the temple mount, the temple area there, you see that, what looks like a little fortress there? Can you see that? Way in the back. That's the fortress of Antonio. That's Pilate's headquarters on the Temple Mount. So he's taken from Caiaphas' house all the way around to Pilate. Pilate sends him to Herod, which is right back up, right in the middle of the city. You see those red roofs? Go a little bit to the left of those red roofs, and there's Pilate, Herod's palace in Jerusalem. And that's where he was taken before Herod. Then he was brought back to Pilate at the fortress of Antonio. Everybody with me? And I tell you, what, what I always assumed was that how did all this movement take place in such a short period of time? Well, when you go to Jerusalem, it all gets sorted out for you. Today, the entire old city is less than one square mile. You can walk from one side to the other in less than an hour. At the time of Jesus, the city was not much bigger. That's why you can go to Jerusalem today and you can trace Jesus' steps on the night of his arrest, and you can walk that whole distance, all those places we just did, in probably an hour. Especially if it was at night, and if the streets weren't busy, then you could get around even faster. And so when you, when you get there and you see it, you know, it all kind of comes together for you, and you can see how that all these places that we're talking about, we're reading about, they were all really located very, very close together. Follow me? Understand where I'm coming from? Verse 58. But Peter followed Now he's at Caiaphas' house, and Peter's followed him. But Peter followed him at a distance. Always a bad thing to follow Jesus at a distance. To the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now here, Matthew does a wonderful job of some dramatic writing. Because for the rest of the chapter, he shifts back and forth. From the courtroom to the courtyard. From the big rock, Jesus, to the little rock, Peter. From Jesus' trial to Peter's trial, he goes back and forth. Jesus prayed for preparation in the garden. Peter slept in the garden. He didn't need to pray now. He, he boasted. You know, he would never deny Jesus. He would even die with Jesus. In the end, guess who folds and guess who remains faithful? Vance Havner once said of his relationship with God, he said, the Lord had the strength and I had the weakness, so we teamed up. It was an unbeatable combination. That's how we all should feel about it. Peter's about to learn a lesson in self-confidence and how it will betray you. Well, now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none, 
Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. I mean, their own stooges couldn't get their story straight. Their lies about Jesus contradicted each other. You know, according to the law of Moses, a matter had to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. The Sanhedrin couldn't even conjure up any collaborating evidence. You know, it's interesting, the Jewish court broke several of its own rules this night that made these proceedings illegal. First, they were never allowed to make judgments at night. All this happens, you know, before daybreak. Second, they couldn't make judgments outside of the temple chambers. Where does this happen? At Caiaphas's house. Third, a capital conviction was never to be rendered on the Passover. I mean, think about it. If Perry Mason had defended Jesus, he'd have had this case thrown out of court. Johnny Cochran probably would have had it thrown out of court. Verse 60. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Herod's temple took over 40 years to build, and it wasn't even finished at the time. Yet Jesus said he could destroy the temple and he could still build it again in three days. Of course, the Jews thought he was threatening their sacred temple when in reality Jesus wasn't speaking about the temple at all. He was talking about his own body. John chapter 2 verse 19 quotes him that his body would be torn and yet he would be resurrected three days later. That's what Jesus was talking about. Verse 62, And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is this these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. Remember the prophecy? Isaiah 53 verse 7. As a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And the high priest answered and said to him, you know, Caiaphas now cuts to the chase. I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now that phrase, Son of God, was extremely important to the Hebrews. You've got to remember the Jewish thought process. In the Hebrew mind, the son of a cow was a cow. The son of a man was a man. So the Son of God was, was God, exactly. That's why he said, are you the Son of God? Are you claiming to be God? Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What a clear confession. Yes, Jesus is claiming to be God. And here he quotes three Old Testament passages. Isaiah 52 verse 8, Psalm 110 verse 1, and Daniel 7 verse 13. All three verses relate to Messiah's second coming. Jesus now applies it to himself. In essence, Jesus is saying, today you're judging me. But the day is coming when I am going to judge you. Pretty ominous. Then the high priest tore his clothes saying, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now we have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, he is deserving of death. You know, people might claim that people might deny that Jesus is God, but they can't deny that was the claim that he made. 
Because everyone at the time understood exactly what he was saying, that he was claiming to be God. Hey, understand, the claim of Jesus' deity was not a creation of the church. It came from Jesus' own mouth. Yes, he was the Son of God, God in the flesh. Verses 67 and 68 are difficult for us to read. They can still send chills up and down your spine. Then they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ. Who is the one who struck you? And once this death sentence was passed, this stately crew of dignified Jewish gentlemen, suddenly they turned crude and brutal and vulgar. They spit in his face. They throw a coat over his head and start punching him. You know, the Jewish Talmud, they had a, they had a weird teaching that said that a Messiah, when he came, he would be able to identify folks by his sense of smell alone. Thus, they blindfolded Jesus and they asked him who it was that was striking him. In other words, prove that you're the Messiah. Verse 69 now shifts from the courtroom to the courtyard, from the trial of Jesus to the trial of Peter. Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know where you, what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said, to those who were there. This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth, but again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. Recall verse 58? What led to Peter's denial? He followed Jesus at a distance. Guys, allow a little distance to grow between you and Jesus, and your love will grow cold. Before long, you'll find yourself denying Jesus. That's why we need to walk closely close to him, closely behind him. Verse 73, And a little later, those who came by came up and said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for your speech betrays you. I mean, Peter was from Galilee. Now he's surrounded by all these Judeans. Evidently, the Galileans had a little drawl. And so their, their dialect, their accent sort of stood out. Oh, you're, you're a Galilean. But then Peter began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. You know, today sailors have a reputation for foul language. In Jesus' day, it was fishermen. Had the same label. Peter had probably cussed his tangled nets a time or two, but he never dreamed that he would ever curse the Lord that he loved so dearly, and yet here he is. And immediately, cock a a rooster crowed. Roosters were actually banned from Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. The priests viewed them as dirty birds. The fowls defiled the holy city. And so it was very unusual to hear a rooster crow in Jerusalem. That's what made this such a specific sign to Peter. That his confidence had been misplaced. It's last December when we were in Jerusalem. Oh, we had such a great time. And Kathy and I, we actually went over a day early and we walked the city walls. And guess what we were treated to? We were just we were on top of the city walls. We were just across from the Garden of Gethsemane, just across the Kidron Valley. You could see the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and we stopped and guess what we heard? 
she even got her camera out, you know, and she recorded it on the camera. <laughs> what an eerie thing to hear a rooster crow in Jerusalem, you know. And, and it caused, we both just sat there. We both just started thinking about Peter and what it must have been like, how it must have hit him to hear that for the second time. Kind of a bad rooster impersonation, but you get the point, don't you? How it must have how it must have hit Peter. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. And as we've said this morning, the word wept it's translated in the Greek, it's the word for bowels or intestines. Peter's weeping sprang from a deep down sorrow, a gut-wrenching grief. You know, never has a disciple fallen so far, so fast, as did Peter. And he's a warning to us. Hey, remember Peter. He's a man who sat at the Master's feet. He is a man who saw Jesus raise a girl from the dead. Here's a man who saw Jesus transfigured in all of His glory who performed miracles in His name, who even walked on water. Yet His own courage and His own commitment were not enough. Peter needed power outside of himself. And so do you, friend. If it happened to Peter, it can happen to you. Unless you receive this power of the Holy Spirit upon your life. The Christian life is not like an automobile powered by a fuel, fuel in a tank that we carry around with us. The Christian life is like a streetcar. Remember the old streetcars? They were powered by contact. And you need to have constant contact with the Holy Spirit to be what God wants you to be and to take the stand you need to take for Jesus Christ. We're powered by contact. Hudson Taylor once wrote, God chose me because I was weak enough. He trains somebody to be quiet enough and little enough. And then he uses him. Loud-mouthed, big-headed Peter is becoming quiet and he's becoming little and he's becoming usable. Well, so there we have chapter 26 of Matthew. We'll pick it up in chapter 27 in two weeks.